0: Be seated. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. If you are visiting with us, we just want to tell you how grateful we are that you're here. I'm sure you've already been welcomed by folks, but we're always encouraged when people come and worship with us. We're going to get our Bibles out. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. So we've spent the last 16 weeks uh, working our way through the book of Acts. The good thing about uh, preaching sequentially through the Bible is that um, I believe that's God's preferred method of learning and preaching and teaching and it takes me out of the equation. I'm not uh, preaching on the things that I feel comfortable preaching on or telling you the things that I feel like you need to hear, but we're just moving through the Bible, letting the Bible direct us to the things that the Bible wants to direct us to. And so, you know, it's always fascinating to me when we're moving along that uh, just the way certain passages fall on certain days and times and seasons and the way God orchestrates, especially the, the movement between the, the book that we're preaching through on Wednesdays and Sundays and what we're seeing from the scriptures on Sunday morning. And so I want to encourage you this morning that the sovereign God of the universe knew that today you would be here and that we would be On this particular text, this is a text, uh, by the way, it's on page 1262 and it's a text you really have to look into a Bible and follow along. If you didn't bring a copy of Scripture, just grab that black hardback Bible in front of you there and turn to page 1262 because it's a very... um, Very unique passage of Scripture. It's one I've been looking forward to for some weeks. I've been thinking a lot about this over the last month or so. I uh, have preached on this text multiple times. And every single time that I come to this text, God shows me new and different things. And it's so very instructive. But yet, I would also say that this text is also very dangerous. And that's why I want you to pay close attention. I want you to read what's in the Scripture with me, and not just sit there and think, well, that's what it says. Well, you need to see it. Be helpful to you to see exactly what God's Word says. Because this is a, like I said, I believe a very dangerous passage of Scripture that if we mishandled or misapplied or misunderstood could lead us into all sorts of error and has done so to many people in many times past. So let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll study together. Father, we humble ourselves before you. We thank you for your word. God, we declare that we believe that this is your perfect errant word, that you have breathed out, that it's intended for us, that you spoke this knowing full well that this day would come in our lives, that we'd be together. Each and every one of us, there's no one here on accident or by surprise to you. And so here we are in this text this morning. May it be for your glory. We pray that you give us spiritual ears that we might hear. Help us to not be distracted. Help us to focus on you. That you'd be glorified in the preaching and the hearing and the responding to your glorious word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now is what we found is that the the book of acts is instructing us about things it's it's teaching us about the first church the early church and how people who didn't have any preconceived ideas or notions about the way church was supposed to be would respond naturally by the leading and the moving of the holy spirit and It's interesting that uh, what we've seen in these last two chapters, all from chapter seven and through the first part of chapter eight, is that Luke has a very uh, specific focus here as he pens this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he, he intentionally has the focus of this early church not on the apostles, which is interesting because up until that point it had Primarily been about the apostles and their teaching, but then there's been a, a shift with the in Acts six where where the people were the apostles charge of people to call up men to be to become servant leaders among them, and then Stephen, one of those men, is out preaching and is stoned, and and then it set this sequence of events that through the persecution of uh, the stoning of Stephen and and other persecutions that the church then scattered. By the providence of God. That was God's way of making sure that the gospel didn't stay in Jerusalem, but that it moved across the world. And so, I want you to just sort of pay close attention to how um, he doesn't tell us about the activity of the apostles, but the scripture is focused on the activity of just ordinary believers. So we're going to begin in verse 4 where we ended last week, we covered this section, but we're going to look at it one more time to set the context. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. The Scripture says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out with of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Now, if you have your listening guide, your first blanks this morning, so the first time the gospel left Jerusalem, it was carried by ordinary believers and not apostles. It's important to see this, that as the scattering, remember, the the previous passage told us that Everyone scattered except the apostles. God kept the apostles in Jerusalem and everyone else scattered. And that was by God's sovereign design. So the kingdom is advancing. And how is it advancing? It's advancing in miraculous ways. But it's not by the preaching or teaching of a few anointed special people. But it's done so by God's people, all of God's people. You know, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, it's not as the, as the, the army of God marches forward, as the, the kingdom of God is built and established, you know, it's not a few generals that are um, orchestrating everything. It's the kingdom advancing when God's spirit-filled soldiers on the ground disperse in the power within them and the context around them, and that's what we're seeing here. Philip is teaching us many things. Now, Philip was also one of the men identified in Acts chapter 6 as a faithful man, full of the Spirit. He's a a Hellenistic Jew who was chosen to distribute food to the widows and the needy. And as we think about how God is using Philip here in Samaria, we have to stop for a minute and just sort of think this through that, well, why are we reading about Philip? And why is it, because there are many people doing this, but Philip is the one that the Scripture's focusing our attention upon. And we're sort of following his ministry all the way through next week. We'll be following his ministry to the end of this chapter. Now, how did he begin? Why is it that Philip is being used to do such great things? And well, he's teaching us that if you, if you can't be a servant, you can't be a leader. That God has prepared Philip to, to do the things that he's doing, but in the way that God does so. That whoever among you desires to be great, let him be your servant. Whoever is first will be last, Jesus taught. So the way to for us to understand it might be this way. If you're too big to serve, then you're too small to lead. If you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. Now, I want you to understand how this takes place. Philip is just another face in the crowd. We, in fact, we don't even know his name prior to Acts 6. Not only is he another face in the crowd, but he's a minority. He's a. He's, he's not a... Uh, a Hebrew, but he's a Greek. He's an outsider. So he's come to faith in Christ, but he's from the outside. He's a minority among a majority. And this is the economy of the church, that this man, this nameless, faceless man, who is known only maybe by God and a few other people, but he's faithful and he's devoted and he's dedicated and so he's there and he's serving and he's working and guess what happens God begins to use him he's using him because he's usable he's not it's not that there's something special about Philip as much as it is there's something special about God and the way God chooses to use those who are faithful and i just want you to understand something that Faithfulness in the economy of God is a dangerous thing. It, it really is. It, it sets you up to be used by God to do great things. And if you desire to be great for God, if you desire to be used for God, I can tell you how that's going to happen. That's going to happen through faithfulness. It's going to happen through a willingness to serve in whatever capacity you can serve that means you may be doing things that you don't necessarily want to do, but that's okay if they need to be done, they need to be done. I always think back about my father in law's testimony you know my my Lisa's father was a a pastor for a long time and uh, when I first got saved, I remembered the the stories of when him and my mother in law first got saved. And I remember how they were so zealous for God. And now understand, I'm I'm a brand new Christian. I don't know anything, but I know these stories. And I remembered the stories of how they were so zealous. They lived out in California. He was still in the Air Force and they would go down to this little church where they had gotten saved and and uh They'd mop the floors on Saturdays to get ready for Sundays. They just couldn't do enough. They were, they were constantly just serving and working and serving. And nobody ever dreamed that God would call him into the ministry, that he'd become a very successful pastor and evangelist. That That was the furthest thing from anybody's mind. He didn't know anything. He was just serving, trying to be a vessel. And I just remember... When I got saved, just uh, how God had used that in in their lives. And it wasn't that I wanted to be a pastor. It's just that I wanted to be useful in the kingdom. And so I've just served around here and did anything I could do. And a lot of the things that I did, I really didn't want to do. And I didn't feel equipped to do or able to do. But faithfulness is dangerous. It, It really is in a good way. In a good way. God works through faithful people. Now, the next thing that we see here is where Philip goes. Because clearly, this probably isn't Philip's idea. It's just the leading of the Spirit. And the reason I say that is because the text tells us that Philip goes to Samaria and starts preaching. So it's going to teach us another principle about the gospel, and that is this, that in God's economy, the gospel flourishes in the path of greatest resistance. Greatest resistance, not least resistance. The most difficult place to preach would have been Samaria. The last place anybody wanted to go would have been Samaria. You can liken uh, God sending Philip to Samaria to God sending Jonah to Nineveh, and it just shows you the difference between Philip and Jonah, the difference between an old covenant believer and a new covenant believer. Filled and dwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit, Philip goes right into the place of greatest resistance. Now. You have to understand something about Samaria. Uh, I, I talked a lot about that last week and about how there was so much tension and hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you looked at a map, what you would see is Jerusalem's to the south, and you'd see Galilee to the north, and you'd see in the middle would be Samaria. And so when the Bible says that someone went down from Jerusalem to Samaria, they actually went north. It means down because Jerusalem is... Elevated far above Samaria. And so they went down to Samaria. Well, whenever a Jew would travel from Jerusalem to Galilee, they would go around Samaria as to not have to walk through a defiled land filled with defiled people whom they hated. And so it would be an, an extra day of travel. And, you know, as I, uh, over the last few weeks, as I studied just the whole all of the animosity between the two groups and how it started and and the things that evolved over time. And, you know, it began way back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings with the Assyrians. But the, the animosity built over years and years and years such that when you get to the New Testament, there was so much hatred there because, for example, if the Jews in Jerusalem needed to send a message to... Their counterparts in Galilee, how would they do so there's no internet there's no cell phones they can't you know so what they would do is go up on the mountain and they would light fires on the top of the mountain that would send a signal that said, "Hey, come, come to Jerusalem we have a message for you and so the the burning of a fire at the top of the mountain would be a signal and so the Samaritans who hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated them. I mean, trust me, they had every reason to. Like if you read in Ezra chapter 4, when Ezra was, was rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans came and said, hey, we want to help. And the Jews said, nope, we don't want your help. You're not allowed here. Get off our... I mean, it was, it was bad. So you know what the Samaritans would do? The Samaritans would, would, would go up on the tops of the mountains and they would light fires and then the Jews would walk for two days and they'd get down there and go, Hey, what do you need? And they go, I don't need anything. Why, what do you mean? <laughs> you talk about wrong. It got so bad that there are uh, uh, historical writings that, that talk about how at Passover, on the eve of Passover, the Samaritans would take these little catapults and they would catapult. over the wall into the temple. That is low. So anyone who got touched by any of the pig splatter was then unclean and unable to worship at Passover. I mean, that's that's tough. So the Jews weren't just going to take it lying down they destroyed the Samaritan's temple and uh, you know if you read John chapter 4 where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well and you you now know what's going on in Acts and you go back and read that with fresh eyes and you see Jesus is saying that there's a day coming when we'll neither worship on this mountain or that mountain Jesus is prophesying about there's going to be a unification but of course When Jesus said that, nobody knew what in the world he was talking about because that didn't make any sense because Jews and Samaritans worshiping together was the furthest thing from anybody's mind that could ever happen. But so you just get a glimpse of how controversial Jesus was when he said things like, or what about the parable of the Good Samaritan? Now you understand why a Jew... Hearing Jesus talk about this good Samaritan would be repulsed by that story. What are you talking about? A good Samaritan, you know? They're hurling pigs over the wall at us. So Philip goes down and preaches in Samaria, and verse eight says, "And there was great joy in that city." Hmm. There's great joy. I get the sense that if you look at the history of the Samaritans, it, it always seemed to me like they longed to be accepted into Judaism, but they never were, but they, they longed to and things got out of control and out of hand and people were definitely operating in the flesh like a bunch of, you know, children, but they wanted to be accepted and they never were and Now there's joy in that city. So it shows me that the gospel is the most powerful force of unity on earth. It's the most powerful force of unity on earth. The gospel can reconcile anything and anyone. So this then causes us to have to ask the question... Do we believe that there are people who are too far gone, who are too dirty, too wicked, too settled or determined in their rejection to receive the gospel and Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do we, do we maybe not say that, but our actions would dictate that we've somehow come to believe that? You see, any time that we believe that someone's too far away, whether it be a people group or a people or a person, anyone, we're failing to properly understand the gospel. We're vastly and grossly underestimating the power of the gospel to reconcile. And that's not what it calls us to. That that we, we should clean ourselves up or make ourselves worthy before we can come to Christ No, it calls us to come to Christ to be made clean no matter how filthy we might be. And that's that's an important distinction to make because if we really think about this, it it will cause us to examine some things in our life that maybe in our heart that we don't really like to admit. We have a tendency to label people or to think of people as being outcasts or outsiders or too vile or too too something. What they've done is so abhorrent, it's so terrible in some way that it's, it's made them unreachable or... We would deem that situation to be casting our pearls before swine. But the we've ever met and every person we ever will meet is a person that the gospel can reconcile. Can reconcile. They're all within God's reach, every person. So why do we put such limitations on it? And this is, this is a, a bit hard, but I think it's, I wouldn't have said it if I weren't 100% sure it's true. I think the way to overcome this in our heart is to embrace the following statement. It's not just that no one is too wicked to be saved. It's that no one is more wicked than us before we were saved. That'll set us right. You see, when we cast judgment on too far for God to reach... What we're doing is we're saying that we weren't that far when God reached us, which is utterly untrue. You see? So when we recognize, if we think of ourselves as the chief of all sinners, like Paul did, we'll embrace the power of the gospel to reach anyone around us. Now, all that said, you have to sort of have all that in your heart and mind to move into verse 9 to move into the thrust of this text because if you don't you're going to get tangled up because here is where it starts to get dangerous there's joy in the city of Samaria verse 9 but there was a certain man there called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria claiming that he was someone great To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So now what happens is we're introduced to this Simon character, this man who's become a celebrity of sorts because of his... Magic, because of his uh, ability to mesmerize and and to pull off illusions and basically, this is no different from the magi that came to the birth of Jesus. These were astrologers or soothsayers or sorcerers. they were using all sorts of things, some demonic some just uh, foolish, but all sort of tangled together and weaved together, whether it was incantations or charms or spells or divinations or horoscopes or any other thing like that. And so he was using all of these things to draw attention to himself and to mesmerize people, sort of labeled him the great power of God. Now, who was this Simon character? Well, Unfortunately, I mean, I wish I could tell you that there was not debate about this. There shouldn't be, but um, boy, I have heard this text so wrongly handled in so many ways. But let me just straighten some things out, okay? First of all, before we go any further, you got to know that what Simon was, was a, he was a false prophet. He, and, and the reason we know that, first and foremost, is because True prophets will direct praise towards God. And false prophets always direct praise towards themselves. And what happened was Philip arrives on the scene. And he starts, the Bible says, performing signs and wonders. And so you can see that he sort of moved into Simon's realm. He's doing the things that Simon had been known for. And so... As Philip preaches the gospel and performs these signs and wonders, he casts out demons, he heals people. Well, Simon watched this and he watched the people not only following Philip, but also he was in awe of the great power that was flowing through Philip. I mean, he had spent his whole life trying to perfect his craft and to try to, you know, do the most amazing things he could do. And then suddenly this guy shows up and so he's... Definitely enamored by that. Look at what happens in verse 13. Then Simon himself also believed, the Bible says. And when he, had, when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them Who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, He had not fallen upon them, or He had fallen on none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Now... You see where it starts getting dangerous? So, first of all, let's just start with the easy part. I want you to notice that when the apostles, all of the apostles hear that the gospel had gone to Samaria, all the apostles hear this, and then amongst themselves, they choose to send a delegation, but they choose to send... Peter and John, which I find fascinating. The two apostles who had been the leaders thus far early on in the church. But it caught my attention as I imagined John, the apostle. We know some things about John. We know that, that John has, a, has several nicknames in Scripture from what we learn about him in the gospel accounts. One of them is, is that John and his brother were known as the sons of thunder. Because in Luke chapter 9 with regard to the Samaritans John was so put off by the Samaritans that he asked Jesus Lord do you want me to call down fire from heaven so I can just torch all of them for you? Remember that? Hmm. He wanted to to kill them all like Elijah. And now He's going down to care for and to serve and to minister to the very people that he wanted to call fire from heaven down upon. Now, you can see where there's a lot of room in here to get all sorts of tangled up. So they go down, they've received the word, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. And boy have I had some weird conversations with people about this. You got people who have twisted this all around, people who take these verses and they they use them to teach that all believers don't receive the holy spirit at salvation and that they should seek this second experience and there's groups of people that believe that you can be saved and not possess the holy spirit and then then you would you would need to to pray that the, the elders or the pastor or the apostles or whoever would lay their hands upon you that you might receive it. And then the receiving of the Holy Spirit would be evidenced by some supernatural gift like speaking in tongues or something of that nature. And they would use this as a proof text to that. Well, let's just be utterly clear. First of all, How do you know what's saying? Well, this ought to be our practice or this is what happened then and ought not be our practice. Well, you read the rest of Scripture. And so here's what we know for sure. We know that according to the New Testament, it's impossible for someone to be saved and not have the Holy Spirit. Right? We know that. How do we know that? Well, there's a hundred texts that prove that. But first of all... The the simplest, clearest, shortest, most concise explanation is Paul's statement in Romans chapter 8. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit, he is not his. Period. There you go. So that's not the case at all. That when a person is saved, they receive the Spirit, the whole Spirit, all the Spirit. They may not have the capacity to utilize it, but they possess it. The Spirit is within them. We know that from Scripture. Scripture. So what's going on here? Well, I mean, why is this, why do we see this unique situation here? And why has God drawn our attention to it? Maybe God was doing something very unique here, which He was, but He didn't necessarily have to draw our attention to it, but He wants to. He wants us to to know this for some reason. So why? Why do the apostles uh, have to go down and lay hands on the Samaritans in order for them to receive the Holy Spirit? I mean, what would that be about? I think it makes perfect sense if you just think about the context and the situation. Is this not a supernatural act on God's part of unity? In other words, wouldn't it be absolutely necessary, absolutely necessary for the believers in Jerusalem to accept? the Samaritan followers of Christ in order for the gospel to go forth the way God intends? Wouldn't that be necessary? Well, of course it would be. And furthermore, they would have to accept not just that the gospel had went to Samaria, but they would have to accept them as their brothers and sisters in the family of God, right? Well, sure. So therefore, you can see why God would Send the apostles down there, removing all opportunity for doubt, to make sure that this was sort of ratified, if spread, that would begin to let the world know that this gospel was truly a gospel for the nations. Yes. You see, had the apostles not gone down and saw the work in Samaria with their own eyes, had that not happened the way God had directed it, well, they would have been people would have been disconnected from the work in Samaria they would have thought well there's this work in Samaria and there's this work in Judea and they're two different works and they would have been went right back down the path that they were on for the previous 500 plus years that wouldn't have glorified God and that wouldn't have, have all been what God's intention is no and so as the, as now that they see the the gospel being for the nations and that Jews and Samaritans who, who were once bitter enemies are now reconciled to one another. What a beautiful picture. You see the household of God being formed right there before our very eyes. You see what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, for by one spirit we're all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free. Yes, you see? That... God specifically and intentionally did this supernatural act of unification so that we would be able to see how important it is to Him that we as one household of faith carry the mantle of the gospel forth. Now, three sort of uh, principles that will come in the following passages in the remainder of this section. Number one, life in Jesus' kingdom is one under authority, not in authority. Because as we examine Simon under the backdrop of what's going on with Philip and and the Samaritans around, that's how we'll get clarity. And the first principle we'll see is this principle of authority. So I want you to see what happens. Look at verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands that the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Wow. Saying, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your money perish with you. That is the ultimate politically correct way to translate What that says in the original language, which is, to hell with you and your money, is what Peter said. Because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Hmm. What a shocking thing. Now, here's where it would be real easy for... The train to leave the tracks, for us to get off track with what the Spirit of God wants us to see. This would be the moment in the text where we can all start looking, looking down our nose at Simon. But well, that would be a mistake because the church today is filled with Simons. Filled. And how do we know that? Well, we've, we've been seeing that over the last few weeks out of the book of Acts. But let's consider maybe a couple examples. You see, what's at issue here is authority. Authority. Now remember, and about people who determine how and which way and when and where and what manner they're going to worship God are no different from people bowing down to a wooden statue. Remember that? And so when it comes to this issue of authority, all you have to do is, well, you can listen to what I'm about to say, or you could, you know, as I was thinking about this this week, I thought, you know, God, I know you know way better than I do, but, you know, here would be a consideration for maybe, you know, the future at some point, you know. What would be good is if you had some situation where maybe, you know, I don't know, a month, a year or something like that. You know, we rotated around and, and everybody got an opportunity. You know, I would like for you to have an opportunity to be the pastor of this church for a day. That would, Man, that would be so good for me. Not only would I get a little time off, but would it help you tremendously? because then illustrations like I'm about to make would be so you you would go well, yeah because this is what I see all the time you have conversations with people today and there's these quote unquote the the gray areas of scripture that's always where authority comes to the forefront is what somebody considers to be it's a, it's a gray area so the most common ones would be, I would say, faithfulness and generosity. Those would probably be the two central ways that most people determine how they're going to worship God. In other words, you individually decide how what, what you determine is faithfulness and what generosity is. As if the Bible doesn't say anything about either one of those two things. Now remember, oh wicked Simon, he's got an authority issue. And just because we can clean up and dress up and come to church on a Sunday morning. But when it comes to faithfulness or generosity. Rather than submit ourselves to the authority of scripture, what we do is we say, well, I don't think God really has a problem with that. Or I don't really think that or my favorite, I've decided. Hmm, OK. I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, considering the fact that you're not God yeah, you could see where, you know, you could come to that conclusion. We're not really here talking about what you think or what you see or what you, right? So let me just suffice it to say it this way belief without surrender. Know in my heart that the church is riddled with Simons, and these Simons are in for a rude awakening. It's wishful thinking. That you can be a Christian on your terms. That is unbiblical, wishful thinking. You see, when you say things like... The problem is not that, you know... The the goal is not for us to come and say oh, well, you know, we've got all, every area of our life straight and we're all, you know, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly living every area of my life under submission to God. No, because that wouldn't be true. And then we'd all be liars and that'd be a whole new problem. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are the places in your life that are out of the will of God and you're okay with that. That's the problem. And there's a difference. You see, because either you've given Jesus full control or you haven't given Him control at all. I mean, the question is the lordship of Christ in your life and the authority of Scripture. And so if the Scripture says, thus says the Lord, then you know what? The person who chooses... Not to submit to that has an authority problem. Amen. I love you. We just got to be reminded of that every once in a while. You see, Simon, l- listen now. Simon's, Simon is not some f- far out wacko, Simon is a guy who wants Jesus in his life. He does. He wants Jesus in his life. But he doesn't want to give up control of his life. He doesn't want to give up his life. He just wants Jesus. Well, that doesn't work. So authority, first of all. Second of all, life in Jesus' kingdom is lived focused on the glory of God, not on the glory of yourself. It's not on the glory of yourself. Now, look at what happens with Simon. Peter goes on, after he says to hell with you and your money. And he says, verse 21, You have neither part nor portion in this matter. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness and pray god if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you now i think it would be helpful just for, you know for the next 10 minutes for all of you to just think for a moment just kind of breathe in and breathe out and go you know at least peter is not your pastor Amen. See? See, suddenly, man, Tony's looking better. Right on. I mean, here the guy is coming to church, makes a profession of faith, gets baptized, is wowed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, come on, Peter, give him a break. And if you want to underline something in your Bible, verse 22 has a couple words that you should definitely underline. Where he says, and pray God, if perhaps, if perhaps, that is a, that's a big moment right there, that the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Oh, that speaks right into all the areas of our life where we just presume upon God. Oh, well, let's, it'll be okay This is the passage I think about when somebody says to me, well, I know God's going to forgive me. You do, huh? Okay. And then I'll say, can I read you a passage of Scripture? This isn't the only place in the Bible that says this, but I'll usually turn to this one because it's the clearest, and I'll read it to them, and then they'll kind of look at me, you know, their head will tilt, you know what I mean, it's, it's like my dog Oscar when I'm getting something out of the cabinet, he, he'll be, he could be all the way at the furthest part of the backyard, and you get some food out in his head tilts, he's like, like he knows, you know, something's, well, what's going on in there, what, and I say, well, the Bible says if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Hmm. Now, this is what I want you to see that Peter's not being harsh here to Simon. this is the most graceful this is, this is like a this is like a a, a a shower of mercy on Simon's life. Listen, this coming to God with human agenda is an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. This is a, this is a, a, a killer cancer that if it, if it comes into your life, it, it's got to be immediately diagnosed and treatment has to begin. This, this would be like Peter being, a, being a, a physician and somebody unbelievably ill coming into his practice and him discovering what's wrong and then waiting to tell him. No, I mean, this is mercy. He's saying, listen, you need to deal with this now. See, when when a person invites Christ's power into their life in order to accomplish their goals, they not only misunderstand, but they miss the power of God in their lives. You understand that? God will not play that game. He will not play that game. So let me say that again. When a person invites the power of God into their life to accomplish their goals, they not only misunderstand, but they miss altogether His power. He will not be Mocked. He is not our servant. We are his servants. Now, you can be utterly convinced that what you want God to do is the right thing to do, but it's still your agenda. And God does not operate that way. And Simon comes along and he sort of takes all the right steps. But his heart is wrong. It's wrong. It's the whole God is my co-pilot gospel. If God is your co-pilot, you're lost. You're lost. Because he is not anybody's co-pilot. He never will be. He never has been. You see... So Peter puts repentance sort of in jeopardy. You notice that? Hmm. So let, let me just talk for, about repentance for a couple minutes. You see, when a person says, I can't change, the essence of that statement is disbelief in the gospel. Okay? When a person says they can't change, they're disbelieving the gospel. Now, repentance is a gift that God gives. And repentance is always, always, always available for the saved. Repentance is always available for the born again, always. But that's not what we're dealing with right here. We're dealing with somebody who is not converted, who is not a believer, who has not been born again. But make no mistake about it, if you're here this morning and you're saved, repentance is available to you always. But it's only possible by the grace of God, and you got to remember that. It's a gift of grace. Remember back in Acts chapter 5, when Peter was preaching, he said, In him God exalted, talking about Jesus to his right hand, to be the prince or the captain and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins? You see, it's a, it's a gift from a holy God that's available to the saved. But listen, to say that repentance is always available to a lost person would be to say that a person can come to Christ any way they want to, and that's not true. Case in point, Simon the sorcerer right before us. You can't do that. You can't come to Christ on your terms. That simply won't work. See, repentance is not found in seeking change, but in seeking God. Okay? That's what you need to know about repentance. Yes. Now, now let me explain that statement to you, okay? There is absolutely, positively nothing wrong with desiring to change. My goodness, we all need that. We should desire to change. But there is a difference between saying, I want to change, therefore, I'm going to use God or come to God or believe in God to become who I ultimately want to be. As opposed to saying, I need to change. I know that I'm not right. And the only way that that can happen is through a relationship with God. You see, the only one who can change you from the inside out is God. And so acknowledging that God is the one who can change me and that I need to change and coming to God in repentance, that's awesome. But wanting to change the way you want to be, wanting things to be according to your will or your purpose, coming to God with some motivation to fix things, that you want fixed, listen, that's mocking God, and He will not be mocked. He's not Santa Claus. You don't make a list, check it twice, mail it into Him, and He grants it. That's just not, that's ridiculous, okay? On one hand, people oftentimes will come to God to get things done, that's a mistake. What we need to understand is that God and God alone has the power to transform us from the inside out. And we submit to that power. And it's okay to want things. That's fine. But what's not fine is to be unwilling to yield to whatever God wants if it may be different than what you or I want. So we have... The issue of authority, we have the issue of motive or repentance. And then number three, life in, the, in Jesus' kingdom is lived enslaved to righteousness, not enslaved to sin. Enslaved to righteousness, not enslaved to sin. See, Paul says in Romans that we're no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. So, look at verse 23. Peter says, for I see, you'd think, good gracious, hasn't he said enough to him? Like, man, No, 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 he's got more. He loves him so much. Look at the love he has for Simon. Isn't that amazing? He says, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. Hmm. Now believe me, I'm sure, there's no doubt in my mind that some of you and and for sure many of you have heard people use this text as an illustration of somebody who who repented and, and became a Christian. And it's just, it's sad is what it is. It's sad. Because a Christian is not bound by iniquity. There's a hundred reasons why Simon is not a Christian. But you know what seems to throw people off more than any other part of this text? Is when Simon answers in 24 and says, Pray the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. And they say, See? Look, he's saying that he agrees with you. No, he is not he's not repenting you know what he's saying the same thing every person who's sane would say i don't want bad things to happen to me right which is exactly why i will never nor will this church ever stand up in any way shape or form before a group of children and say now Let's talk about hell for 10 minutes and then go, now, does anybody here want to go to hell? Raise your hand. And nobody does. Say, now, does anybody here not want to go to hell? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, pray this prayer after me and you're... No one wants to suffer. No one wants to go to hell. That's not an expression of faith in Jesus. That's just an expression of sanity. Right. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Pastor. You're talking about a guy. The Bible says he believed. Philip's preaching. This is what it says. He believed. He got baptized. And then he continued with Philip. Isn't that what it said? Well, I mean, that's got to be. That's got to be saving faith, right? Come on. He believed. Well. What did he believe? He believed in what he saw. The Bible tells you what he believed. He saw the signs and wonders and he was amazed by that, was Isn't that what it says? So what happened in John chapter 2? The Bible says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many, what's the word, believed in the name of Jesus. Why? Because they saw the signs which he did, but he didn't Commit himself to them because he knew what was in their heart, right? Yes. What about Luke chapter 8? When Jesus taught on salvation and he taught about the human heart and he taught about the different soils of the human heart, right? And didn't Jesus say that there's a certain kind of heart, that the word of God, the seed, falls on this heart? Luke, hmm. Those are who, but these fall on the rock. Hmm. Those are who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Sounds like Simon. Wow, he was amazed by that power, so he receives it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. They believe. They believe for a while. But when temptation comes, they fall away. They fall away. When he... He believed and then when he saw maybe I could get this power and I could use this power and he was tempted to get this power and so he then asked Philip if he could pay him to receive it or the apostles if he could pay them to receive the power. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you have received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. There's a lot of believing, but it's not all unto salvation. See, for a long time, early on, I really struggled with this in my own heart as a pastor because I would see people come and I would see people appear to be moved and I would see people respond and I would see people get baptized and then I would see people fall away and I would get very discouraged and this is what I I would think I would think Lord you know, something must be wrong with me. In other words, am I not preaching the gospel rightly? Am I not dividing the word rightly? Is there something lacking in what I'm doing some way that's causing this to happen? And I remember years ago preaching on this text, and God so encouraged me as I saw this happening to Philip who was so faithful in preaching the word of God and so many people were converted and changed and that see what we have here is we have the the pure gospel being preached and we have people responding and being converted and transformed forevermore and then we have other people who for whatever reason hear the same message, but don't, they don't get it. They have an authority issue. They have a, I, I think about all the people that, there must be thousands of people that I've preached to in the last 20 years who have listened to me preach the gospel and have received everything that I said, but in their heart they have bitterness They have unforgiveness towards someone. And they're willing to do anything and receive anything, but they're not willing to forgive that person. They're a Simon. You can't come to God on your terms. You can't receive His forgiveness and not give it to someone else. It doesn't work like that. And, and the conversations in your head about how justified you are and how horrible whatever it is they did to you is and all those things. But let me tell you something. I can't change what God says. So do we allow this to discourage us as a church? What happens when we see people come forward and stand in front and make a profession? We even see them get baptized and and then they fall away do we get discouraged and allow that to then break down our confidence in the gospel and maybe cause us to be more timid about sharing it oh that would be a horrible response look at verse 25 so after all this with Simon was over so the So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. You know what they did? They just stayed faithful. They just kept going. They knew that salvation was of the Lord. That's what I do. That's what we do. That's what you need to do. Every time someone stands before us and professes faith in Jesus, you know what we do? Here's our job. Our job is to encourage and to believe and to hope and to watch and to wait. And we know how strong the temptation is, especially with people that we dearly love to make excuses and to try to find some confidence in this or that, but at the end of the day, it's either there or it's not, right? I mean, if you're really honest, it's either there or it's not. And nobody here, no matter who you're thinking of right now, nobody here is going to make the proclamation that the the God of the universe could come into a broken sinful person and dwell them with his spirit and there would be no discernible change that would be absurd it would be utterly absurd see what Simon calls us to do is to get To get real and to realize that the gospel keeps moving and God's people keep moving regardless of the setbacks along the way. Notice what the very next verse says, the text we'll look at next week in verse 26. The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go towards the south along the road which goes to Jerusalem to Gaza. You know, I just, a few months ago, I was really down in my office. And I was thinking about how Man, there's just been people that I've poured so much of my life into. And I'm talking years and years and years and years and years. And they just walk away. It's not, it's not that they walk away from here to somewhere else because that's God's business. I mean, they walk away from God. And it's hard. I think about this text and I think about the Spirit of God whispering in our ear saying, I know it's hard. You think it's hard for you? How do you think I feel? But get up and keep moving because there's people all around you that need the gospel. So here's how I think we respond to this text. Let's expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. It's a hard thing to do in this culture, but I think it's, it's necessary for us to be the people God's called us to be. We have to be people who initially, in our default mode, we think the best. We hope the best. Cynical believers are not useful in the kingdom. We need to be hopeful, faith-filled, spirit-led people. So there's Simons. So what do we do? To whom shall you go? If you don't turn to Christ, to whom shall you go? For only He has the words of eternal life. There's no other way. There's no other way. Let's stand and bow our heads. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can receive your word and know that you love us. You love us enough to tell us. You want us to know. You want us to know that there's a narrow road that leads to life. But there's a wide path leading to destruction. Lord, you love us too much to let us figure things out on our own because you know our minds and our flesh are not trustworthy. And Lord, I know that the point of this text is not for us to try to discern or know or figure out or cast uh, our own judgment on anyone else, but Lord, it's for us to look into our own hearts and to know who we are in you and to be true and honest do we have an agenda an authority problem are we trying to make you into something that we're able to worship which is someone something that you're not ever going to be Lord the point of this text is for all of us to realize that Our goal in this life is to not seek the things of God, but to seek you. You are the gospel, Lord. You are. You're the one who gave your son. You gave everything that we might have life. The only reason we breathe in this moment is because you love us. And in your grace and your mercy... You invite us to become part of your family where you shower us with with your presence. And Lord, you empower us to be your people. You invite us to, to take these fleeting lives that we have and to invest them in what matters the most, Lord. God, thank you for all the Phillips in this room. Thank you for the representation of a church littered with people who were once outcasts, who have come into the kingdom of God. Many, many who even today serve in menial ways. Don't feel good enough or equipped enough or smart enough or mature enough to be able to be used for what they would think are great things in the kingdom. But Lord, thank you. That greatness comes through service. And that you love the humble man or woman or young person who would just surrender their life to you. Admit that there's so much they don't know and understand, but just serve you, Lord. Be faithful. Just do the things that you say, not because we want to, Not because we understand, but simply because you said it. And Lord, how that just invokes your power in our lives. Thank you. God, help us today to just run to your mercy and your grace and realize you are our solution. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And we'll have a time to respond. A time where you can. You can.